morning. Grab a seat. G'day to everybody online. G'day to the family in Bensville. You know, I reckon one of the great things that I've come to learn about being a dad, one of the great things about being a dad is the ability, and in fact I think it's a responsibility, to play tricks on our kids. It's to create the illusion, for example, that you possess that magical power, that you possess that that, that ability to actually steal their nose right off their face. Holding it awkwardly between your fingers, I don't know what that's about. Dads who are particularly advanced in their trickery and pops and uncles too who, who have really honed their skills of deception, they're actually able to uh, detach and, and reattach top of their finger. And then the sad day comes. And for girls, it's when they're maybe two or three. For boys, it's not until they're in high school. <laughs> and they go, hey, that's not real. There's something else going on here. Dad, I reckon you're trying to trick me with that pull your finger thing. They're not even connected. I smell a rat. I smell something. And the ruse is over and the power is gone and we have to up our game. This is the second last message in our series, Being the Church. Kev is going to round it out next week. I promise there's a connection here. And so today we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6 verses 10 through to 18 where Paul is giving some final instruction to the believers in Ephesus and at the heart of that instruction is that there's more going on here than what you can see. At the heart of that instruction is that we're being deceived and the stakes are high and we need to be equipped, we need to be prepared, we need to be ready to deal with it. And so this is the passage we're reading from, it's Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 18, first half of verse 18, and I'm reading here from the ESV. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace and in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul writes, finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In the wake of all of this, in the wake of everything that he's written, in the wake of everything that we've spoken about for the last 10 weeks, be strong. And Paul is echoing his prayer at the end of chapter 3 where he wrote that according to the riches of, of his, glory, his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And you're going to need all the strength you can get. You're going to need all the strength that you can get because everything that we've spoken about, none of that is going to be easy for you. In fact, it's going to be hard. In fact, it's going to be a battle. So put on the whole armour of God. Put on all of it. Don't pick and choose and it has to be God's armour, his armour, not your own, so that you might be able to stand, so that you might be able to hold your ground against the schemes, against those deliberate, thought-through plots and tactics of the devil. Not against the schemes of your neighbour, not against the plots of the government, not against the tactics of your competitor, not against the doctrine of the church down the road, not against the outspoken silliness of Facebook warriors. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, whenever we're dealing with the mystical, and I think we've spoken about this before, whenever we're dealing with the transcendent, those, those matters that are beyond our normal experiences, beyond our normal senses, all we have is metaphor. We have to take something that is familiar and then we have to extend that image into the unfamiliar. That's the only way that we can start to make sense of transcendent things. And so Paul is taking the familiar image of battle, the familiar image of a Roman soldier. You can just imagine it. There's probably one standing outside of his cell as he's writing this down. And he says, we need to be strong and we need to be armed and we need to be ready because this enemy, this enemy that we face is not like any worldly enemy that we know and we need to be ready. We need to be informed. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, we read that one of the reasons that Paul is even writing to the Corinthian church was specifically so that we would not be outwitted, outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. We're not ignorant of his schemes. We, and you and I, we don't want to be ignorant either. So who is this enemy? In Greek, the word, the word for devil, and that's the word that's in, in this passage in Ephesians, the word is diabolos, the devil, the accuser, the slanderer. In Hebrew, the word Satan means the adversary. It means the enemy. And Satan was originally called Lucifer, the shining one, son of the dawn, 
star of the morning, an angel, a fallen angel. We read this about him in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, Lucifer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And the story goes that this beautiful, shining, fallen angel has been leading an unsuccessful rebellion against God, desiring to make himself like the Most High, taking a third of the angels with him, Revelation 12.4 suggests. And this rebellion, it continues to today. It's a battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And there is diverse opinion on all of this. And it's a theological rabbit hole for sure. But what we do know is this. What we know is what Paul wrote in Colossians 1.13, that he, that our Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Praise God. And so although this destiny is secure, the evidence all around us would suggest that this rebellion carries on. In scripture, Satan is called the serpent. He is the ruler of this world, a murderer, a deceiver. He is the father of lies. He is the accuser. He is the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one. And the number one pursuit of this devil is to prevent belief. It is to prevent the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he is going to use any and every tactic to keep unbelievers in their unbelief, trapped in sin and in its consequences, not set free by Christ. And he will use every scheme to keep believers from the full revelation of their belief in Christ, in who he is and what it is that he has done. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And why is he doing this? Why does Satan want to keep people in unbelief? John writes this in 1 John 5 verse 4. He writes, For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, faith and belief are the same idea here. It's the same root word. And it means that I have been persuaded. It means that I am convinced, convinced that that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he has done, and he is like what he says he is like. And I'm going to allow that conviction to shape my life. 
The battle is for our belief in the truth about Jesus. It was on Peter's confession of that belief, his confession that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, that Jesus told him. Jesus says, on this rock, Peter, on this truth, on your confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this Satan, this Lucifer, the shining one, he wants to keep you in the dark. He wants to keep you from the truth. Jesus himself says in in John 8, Jesus describes him as a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then meanwhile, we Christians, it seems, me, still don't seem particularly well-equipped to not only resist the lies of this enemy, but to even spot them in the first place. Some of you might have uh, read the screw tape letters if you're a C.S. Lewis fan. And in the screw tape letters, um, C.S. Lewis says that there are two attitudes, there, there are two perspectives that are, that are both uh, kind of equally troubling Both of these perspectives um, leave us equally disarmed. And the first is that we would dismiss the idea of the devil, dismiss the idea of a spiritual darkness as some kind of hocus-pocus. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, which is equally problematic, is to become so fixated on the demonic that we give the enemy far too much credit and far too much attention, and both ends of this spectrum seem equally fine to the enemy. Suffice to say that the enemy is real, and so therefore, therefore take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So take it up. Put it on as an act of your will. Put all of it on and make sure that it's his armour, not your own, because a spiritual adversary requires a spiritual response. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. Battle is for belief. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. And so we take up the full armour of God that you, all of you, all of us might be able to withstand, to stand our ground, to take our stand, to stand firm. It's a military term to resist, to oppose, to hold our position in the face of adversity, that you may be able to withstand on the evil day, that inevitable day of attack, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. In these next four verses, Paul outlines six pieces of armour. It's seven, actually. Seven pieces of armour, and he starts with the soldier's belt. And a Roman soldier's belt 
It's made of metal and leather. It was the carrying place for his sword. It also had this uh, protective piece that hung down the front, very important. Um, and other than, this, other than his undergarments and his tunic, the belt is the first piece of armour that the soldier would put on. His belt held all of the other pieces of, of armour together. And it was also what he would tuck his tunic up into, ready for battle. And some translations might say, uh, gird your loins, ready for action, with your loins girded. Truth is the very first piece. It is the centrepiece that holds everything else together. So what is this truth? Well, truth is, it's the objective truth. It is the, the proper way and nature and order of things. It is biblical truth. It is the grand narrative in which all of objective truth finds its place. But ultimately, truth is a person. Truth is Christ himself. He is the ultimate truth. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Christ is the ultimate reality and he is our starting point. We are encircled by truth. Now this is interesting. Isaiah tells us in chapter 11 verse 5 that for, for, the, for the Christ, for the coming Messiah, that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now righteousness is a relational idea. It simply means in right relationship with God. This righteousness is secured and it is expressed by Jesus' own faithfulness, total faithfulness to the Father. So this is Jesus' belt. Jesus' belt is right relationship with the Father through his own faithfulness. You and I don't get the belt of righteousness as our starting point. That is Christ's alone. Instead, we put on the belt of truth, the truth that Christ alone is the righteous one, that Christ alone is the faithful one. Do you get that? It is only because we have the belt of truth that we can then put on the breastplate of righteousness. If we don't have the truth, we can't put on righteousness. So for our Roman soldier, the breastplate is this really heavy piece of armour protecting the heart, protecting the vital organs. And we know throughout scripture, it talks about the heart a lot, uh, the heart is the place of deep desire. The heart is the place of deep belief. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. The devil is after your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your deep belief. He wants your deep desire to be captured by anything other than God. Money, fame, status, indulgence can be captured by shame, self-loathing, religion, good works, anything. And Paul is saying that it is righteousness. It is right relationship with the Father that guards our hearts from the enemy attacks. Righteousness made possible only by faith in Christ. 
Paul writes this in Romans 4. He says, people are counted as righteous not because of their work but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Now, Satan will tempt us toward unrighteousness. He will tempt us toward broken relationship with God. And when we think about this, we can, ju- we can jump straight to thinking that that's about behaviour, that it's about sinning, that it's about being tempted to do the wrong thing. This battle is not for your behaviour, it's for your belief. Now, don't get me wrong, the way that we behave toward one another, it matters immensely, but it is profoundly superficial compared to the battle for your heart. The enemy wants to steal from you your deep assurance of right relationship with the Father, and so we put on the impenetrable guarantee of righteousness in Christ. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I don't know what it's like in your house, but I couldn't count the number of times, especially when he was younger, having to yell at Abram, get in the car, we have to go. You're going to be late for school. You're going to be late for church. You're going to be late for work. You're going to be late for soccer. Only for him to scramble into the car and you go, mate, where are your shoes? You're not ready. You can have your school bag. You can have your lunchbox. You can have your water bottle and your shin pads. But without your shoes, you're not ready. So there are some Roman soccer boots. They're called Caligae, really thick uh, leather soles. They've even got studs on the bottom to give them grip in the field of battle. So you, you know the truth. You've put it on. You believe the good news that you've been made righteous in Christ. Now put, put your shoes on and carry that good news, carry that gospel everywhere you go. Isaiah writes, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. This is you, beautiful feet, carrying the good news of peace wherever you go. And these ready for action, good news shoes, they're part of the armour. They are part of what is necessary for battle. And if you don't have them on, you are not ready for war. And here's why. If righteousness is right relationship with God, then peace is right relationship with one another. And in battle, we need one another. So put your shoes on and get in the car. Um, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the Roman soldier's shield, it's called a scutum. I was big enough to protect the whole body. It's made of wood and leather and metal and you could even soak this thing in water so that it would extinguish those fiery arrows. Faith and faithfulness are the shield of the believer. 
trusting in God's power and protection and living faithfully in response to his promises. When the battle rages, we remember that in the end, God works all things for good. We can count on it. He was faithful back then. He is faithful right now. He will be faithful forevermore. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith, belief, it matters most when all the visible evidence around us does not seem to line up with what we know is true. Faith matters most when the tactics, when those fiery darts of the enemy try to distort when they try to dilute the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is the creator, he is saviour, he is Lord. And so Paul says, take up this shield in all circumstances. Now we might think that the shield is primarily a defensive weapon and that's true, but when it's in the hands of a whole army, it is much more than that. It's actually what allows the troops to keep moving forward. You see, I think that we tend to picture the armour of God like this. And I want to replace that image with this. This is a phalanx, a line of Roman infantry in formation. A phalanx could be up to a mile long. Shields locked together advancing. Jesus' word for this faith-locked-together army is church. Faith for it to mean anything at all is collective. There is no winning strategy for individual, isolated soldiers. John writes this. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our Faith. And take up the helmet of salvation. Now we know, we know that the head is the, is the place of consciousness, of intellect, of thought and decision. Paul might not have had uh, a, a biological understanding of all that's hopefully going on up here, but he at the least would recognise that the head is the place of perception, of sight and sound and, and smell. And Paul is clear that Jesus is the head of the body. The church. Heads matter. And without a helmet, one blow can prove fatal, and the rest of the army, uh, the rest of the armor is useless without a helmet. The helmet protects our head, protects the head against the sword of the enemy. Now we're about to see in a moment that the sword of the spirit is the word of God, so the sword of the enemy are the lies of Satan, the lies that come to attack our thoughts, that come to undermine the truth, the lies that come to to place doubt in our minds about Christ. And if the enemy can't land a, a blow of doubt, then he will settle for distraction. He will settle for discouragement. And so we take up the helmet of salvation to protect our minds, what we hear and what we see and what we we think. Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says, 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In Philippians, he says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Make no mistake, Satan wants to decapitate the church. He wants to remove the headship of Christ lie by lie, thought by thought, and he wants you to place yourself at the head and he, he will use every trick in the book to make you think that that's a good idea. So we take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Roman sword is the gladius. Blade is about 50 centimetres long. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, it's made for close hand-to-hand -hand combat. And the primary attack is at the head, at the heart, at the gut. And so when the enemy attacks with his sword of lies, he takes aim at the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He goes after your relationship with God and, and, and causes you to question the confidence that you have in your destiny. He tries to dilute, he tries to distort, distort this gospel that you carry and it is only the lived out, spoken out word of God that can resist such attacks and not only resist but advance and take ground. The writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the, th the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Timothy says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So don't reduce, don't reduce the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, down to the book, down to the Bible. Christ Himself is the living Word. Jesus is the word of God, and he lives within us. Now, we want to jam as much scripture in here as we can possibly get. But to take up the sword is to live a Christ-shaped life in word and deed, a life that advances, a life that pushes back the darkness. And again, picking up the sword is not Optional. Paul says, put on the full armour, all of it. Belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet. And if you're a believer, you pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the living word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Supplication is just your requests. Sorry about the cliche image. Prayer is the punchline of the whole passage. Don't miss it. Prayer is the seventh piece of armour and everything else relies on it. And when we pray, we declare the word of God. So look at it. It's one sentence. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. 
declaring the word of God. A spiritual battle requires spiritual weapons and prayer is the ultimate spiritual weapon. It is our direct line of communication with the Lord of heaven's armies. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 4. He says, remember the Lord is coming soon. Some translations will say the Lord is close. The Lord is at hand, so don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for what he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And his peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ. For the believer, for the faithful, for the one who is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the battle is not really for your salvation. That's one. That's sorted and it is not fragile. However, Satan does not want you to live in the light of that reality. And so although your destiny is secure, he wants to immobilise you with doubt, with self-loathing, with self-sufficiency, with comfort, with distraction, with arguments, with busyness. And he definitely does not want you sharing the hope that you have. And this is the larger fight. The battle is for every soul that does not yet know the truth, who has not yet been set free. I wonder that when we hear about the armour of God that we still think that we're picking up the sword to fight for ourselves. Sometimes that's true. But the larger reality is that you and I are in the fight to push back the darkness. You and I are in the battle to reveal to the whole world that there is an ultimate truth. There is an ultimate reality that we can believe in and that reality is good because that reality is Christ himself. We are in a fight and it's a spiritual fight and it's real and it's hard but take heart because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who is in the world. Let me pray. King of heaven, would you strengthen us by your spirit? Would you surround us with your truth, the truth about your son, that he is who he says he is, he's done what he said he's done, and that you are like what he says you are like? Lord, we thank you that because he has done what he said he has done, that you have made us right with yourself for all eternity. Lord, help us to live in the confidence of that righteousness with you. And Father God, equip us to share that good news. Give us the confidence, the boldness to carry that assurance with us everywhere that we go. confident that you are good, that you are causing all things to work for your purposes, Lord God. 
that by your spirit that you would you would strengthen us, that you would protect our minds, that you would guard our thoughts and our choices, guard our words, Lord. And our desire is, Lord, that as you strengthen us, that we would live lives that resemble you, that we would live lives that are being shaped by your kingdom to come and that those lives would shine like lights right here on the central coast. That the goodness of that ultimate truth in you would be evident, that it would be seen in our everyday walking around lives. Strengthen us, Lord. Give us eyes to see the battle that is at hand and knowing that you have given us everything that we need to stand. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.